0: It's good to be together this evening and to come to God's word as always. And you heard from David, we are finishing off a series we have been doing in Amos tonight. Um, And I hope that, uh, okay, that's sorted. And I hope that uh, as we have spent time in Amos, you have really been encouraged uh, and also quite convicted by God's word. Uh, Today, one of the things we will see so clearly is something that we've, we've heard in the songs we've been singing. We'll see that God actually has a story, a story with mankind, a story that he is determined to bring to an end. And we'll see as we come to our passage today. Now, the question I asked you, what is God doing in the world, um, was meant to tease your thinking, to make you think about, what is God really doing in the world? And today we'll see that, and we'll see how he calls us to come alongside him, uh, how Israel was meant to come alongside him, as well, but um, if you're new here today, let me just uh, introduce myself. Welcome to you. Glad you've decided to join us. My name is Reggie, and I am one of the pastors here at Christ Church Midrand. You've joined us in our fifth talk in Amos. This is our last talk in a series that has been titled "Beautiful Ashes," and today we'll talk about beauty. That's what we will look at. We will see how God brings out ashes, uh, brings out beauty, rather, even from our ashes. And how he does that, even with the Israelites. So let's, uh, let me pray for us. And what I'll do is straight after I've prayed for us, I'll go straight into our talk. I'll read the passage a little bit later, as I did last week. Uh, so just to let you know about that, we're in Amos 9. And we will be reading a bit later from verse 11, all the way up to verse 15. But let me pray for us as we come to God's word. Our Father, we do pray that today, we would be yet again captivated by your story. A story that we see so clearly at the beginning in Genesis. A story that tells us, that shows us, that you want to dwell with humanity. And a story that we ultimately see at the end as being fulfilled as you dwell with humanity, with people from every tribe, language, and tongue. And Lord, would you help us to see this from Amos? How even from Amos, you are still intent to keep that promise, to keep to that plan. So would you help us to see that, to see your goodness, to see your love and your kindness, as you even invite us to join you in this story. In Jesus' name we have prayed. Amen. Now, when Bali and I could go to the movies, yes, David, uh, movies once again, Uh, When Bali and I could go to the movies, um, what would often happen is that we would get there late, and when I mean late, I mean we would get there as the ads are starting, Um, so the ads would have started. Now, I won't say who is responsible for us getting us there late, uh, but in the words of Shaggy, it wasn't me. But but we would get there late, and when we got there, what would happen is we would get there, print out the tickets, and as soon as we printed out the tickets, Bali would immediately run in to catch the beginning of the movie, the beginning of the story. And I, the one not responsible, would wait outside to buy the bank draining, i must say that again, bank draining popcorn drinks and sweets. If there's anything you've got to cut out, from your budget in order to be generous. You remember what David said last week? It's this. This you can cut out. But anyway, I will wait outside, i will buy the popcorn, wait until we get inside. And as soon as I've gotten inside, she would, now now she would go inside, let me be honest, she would go inside because she is much better at telling stories than I am. So as soon as I've gotten inside, I'll be there and she'd fill me in on the details of the movie so far. And so we would be those very people, you know those people that everyone turns back to and says, hey, will be those people as she catches me on to what the story has been all about so far. But very often what would happen is she would also have to tell me how the story ends. Because I'll pass out. <laughs> we'll be watching the movie, I'll pass out right before the very end or at the end. I'll miss the end of the movie. Actually, just this past Friday, we just decided to hang out together to watch a movie at home. I passed out that's what happened so she would tell me what the end of the movie was all about as well now imagine this imagine you go to the movies or you have been watching a movie or you find out of a particular story and you do not know the beginning or the end the details in between are very hard to understand if you do not have the beginning and the end the beginning and the end help you to understand what that whole story has been all about i mean we we know this we know it because we have found ourselves at times Uh, when we go to a group of people and we find them mid-conversation. They've been talking, we get there, and and if no one fills you in on what they are talking about, what you usually find yourself doing is trying to figure out how did they start this conversation? Uh, How did they get here? You're trying to figure out how the conversation started, how the story started, and often what happens is you and I, if we jump jump onto the wrong conclusions, it is because we've not had the beginning, so we most likely want to know how the story ends so the beginning and the end tell you a lot about how you can understand what is in between if you have been in a taxi you have heard those conversations those engaging taxi conversations usually started by one old mama who says yo and then the whole text is quiet because they know there's a story that's coming actually there's a guy just recently who put out a thread on twitter a thread is um, a conversation where the person puts a number of comments for those who would not know. Uh, And so, for those who would not know, but anyway, this guy says, the worst thing about the taxi conversation is when you are about to get to your stop and you have been captured by this conversation and they're not yet towards the end of the conversation and you sit there thinking, how will this story end? For the rest of your day, you're wondering about that. What happened? so this guy says in this thread that actually what we should do is create a forum or a platform where people can come and post their stories and how they ended so that you would know what happened with the rest of the story. I think you get the point here. The point is the beginning of the story and the end of the story determine how you will understand or read what is in between. Everything else that is in between. It is very hard to understand everything else that's in between without the beginning and the end if you joined us a little bit earlier in the year we did a series in genesis and in this series that davis took us through he showed us that actually the story of the bible the story of christianity the story of god begins in genesis genesis 1 and 2 kind of obvious right and it ends in revelation 21 and 22 And what we remember about that particular story, what David told us, is that God in Genesis 1 and 2 is clear, his intent, that he wants to make a dwelling place. He wants to make a place where he can dwell with humanity, where humanity can enjoy his blessing, where humanity can enjoy his goodness. And when you read the story of the Bible, as we saw in the series, when you get to Revelation 21 and 22, that's what we see as well. God dwelling with his people in Revelation 21 and 22, but here's the thing, the way that we are to understand everything else we see in between in the Bible, is in in view of those two things, the start of the story and the end of the story, so if we know that God has always been intent to create a place where he can dwell with humanity, a home, that he wants to be at home with humanity, he wants to create a home for humanity, and he also wants to the phrase that David used over and again. He wants to redefine life as they know it. He wants to show them what goodness is. He wants them to experience his goodness. And he wants them to take out this goodness into the rest of the world. If we do not have those two things in mind as we read the story of Christianity, then we might miss out or misunderstand everything else in between that has been said. See, if we we miss the beginning, if we are unaware of it, then we won't be even here in Amos. We won't be able to make sense of Amos. Actually, we won't be able to make sense of how the passages in Amos, before our passage today, passages that are filled with darkness. If you remember that, most of them are filled with darkness and judgment. We won't be able to make sense of those passages in the light of the passage today. Passage which is filled with light and hope. The passage today just seems like a strange addition to what you see in the book of Amos. When you read the book of Amos and you see judgment all throughout and you get to this particular passage that speaks of beauty or restoration, it seems strange if you do not have the beginning and the end in mind. But when you know that God has always intended to dwell with humanity, that God is moving his story towards a particular end, then this passage here is not strange at all but it is something that we anticipate. We await how God will continue his story. And so as we come to our passage today, you and I will see that God is determined to dwell with humanity and that nothing will will stop God making his dwelling with humanity. Nothing will stop his display of his extravagant love. See, not even the unfaithfulness of his people. Not even the idolatry of his people will stop God, the story of God, God making his dwelling among men. Not even the unfaithfulness of his people will stop that. See, God intends to restore humanity. God intends to bring back humanity into his fold, to make a home with them. And what we see here with Israel is a microcosm, meaning a small community of what God wants to do with the rest of humanity. What we see here is what God has always intended from the very beginning. So as we come to the passage, two points today that we have. These are the two points we will see. One, beauty promised. And two, beauty agent or agents. Now I'll explain that one, beauty agents, a little bit later, and you'll see why I went for that very title. So the very first one, beauty promised. And let me read the passage for us for tonight. Listen to God's word from Amos 9. In that day I will raise up the birth of David that is fallen, and repair its breaches, and raise up its ruins, and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom. And all the nations who are called by my name declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the thread of, gra- of, 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 uh, the th- the of grapes him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. They shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them. So two points, and both points will come from this whole section. It's just four verses. So let's go through it. The first one, beauty promised. And as we go through this story, remember this, God is intent to dwell with humanity. Genesis one and two shows us that. And we see that's the end we're going to in Revelation 21 and 22. And in our passage today, we'll see how this passage reminds us of exactly that. So first point, beauty promised. And here what we will see is that the God who demands change, the God who has demanded change from his people, the God who has demanded that his people should show goodness, that his people should show beauty in one sense, is actually also the same God who makes the promise, who makes the promise of change possible. So this God makes the promise that he will bring goodness himself. That he will bring beauty ultimately himself notice how this beauty is described in the details in this passage that is before us notice as you read through it and you will see these things as we go through the passage one we see a beautiful people a restored people in an abundantly beautiful land too with god and the king of god's kingdom dwelling among them three things a beautiful and restored people in an abundantly beautiful land or place with God and his king dwelling among them. So see, these, these three things that I've just pointed out to us is what uh, one commentator called Graham Goldsworthy says runs all throughout the Bible. All throughout the Bible, you will see this theme: how God determines to get a people for himself to create a place where he will dwell with them, where he will be their king where he will rule them with goodness, and he will shower them with his blessings. And So as we come to the passage, let's look at that. And the very first thing we we should think about is God's king dwelling among the people of God. So let's see that as we go to verse 11. Verse 11 reads as follows. In that day I will raise up the birth of David that is fallen, and repair its breaches, and raise up its ruins, and rebuild it as in the days of old. Now this passage here, or this phrase that we see here, the Booth of David, is telling us about how God, or God's king, will dwell with his people. So two things. There's the dwelling, and there's the king. Two things that are brought together through this very phrase, the Booth of David. But let's start, what is a booth? I'm sure you guys have seen a photo booth when you walked into a mall, a photo booth like a small shelter where you walked in to take pictures. It's so a shelter this word booth means tabernacle it means tent it means a dwelling place or a shelter that's what it means and sometimes these shelters were makeshift shelters that were simple and that were temporary constructions so very often during a time which was called the festival of Booths or the festival of tents the people of god would build these tents and they were staying these tents for seven days so if you've been camping you know what they're doing They would stay in these camps for seven days. And you know why they would do that? They would do this to remind themselves of of what God had done for them through the exodus. See, as the people of God went from Egypt, where God rescued them, towards the promised land, as they wandered for 40 years, they stayed in these little booths. But during this time, they were clear, they knew very well that God was amongst them. So as they sat and celebrated these feasts, whenever they had them, these festivals, they celebrated that, that God was intent to create a place where God's people would finally dwell with them, with them, with with him. See, God is intent, and this is what he did with the people of God here, the Israelites. He took them from Egypt, and he brought them to the promised land. And so as they stayed in these booths, they reminded themselves of that. that God has kept his promise, he kept his promise to take us to the promised land, to take us to the place where he wants to dwell with us. But notice that this tells us that it's the Booth of David. So is there something different about that? Well, what does it mean when it talks about the Booth of David? I've given you a bit of background on what the Booths are about. Well, if we have seen the story of God's people so far, we would see that God wants to dwell with his people. And the way that God dwells with his, with his people when they get to the promised land, is they create what is called a temple. So a number of people say this word here, the booth of David, refers to the temple. The temple, the place where God dwells. The temple which was built by David's son, Solomon. The temple which replaced the tabernacle, which was a tent that was made by Moses during the exodus. And that the people of God kept for a while until God asked them to build a temple temple, until David decided to build God a house. So a number of people say this very phrase here, booth of David, refers to that, the temple. Some people say it refers to the city as a whole, Jerusalem, that this city is the booth of David. It is the dwelling place of God. And Isaiah actually, in Isaiah 33, refers to Jerusalem, the, the city, as a tent, because it is the place of God's dwelling. But some people say it is it could be rather the house of David and the house of David referring to the kingship of David. When God says here yeah, he will restore the booth of David, he's saying he's going to restore kingship to the house of David. But I love what one commentator says. This commentator says, actually, it's all of these things. When God says he will restore the fallen booth of David, he's talking about all of these things. He's not just talking about one of them, but all of the above. This is what God will do. God will restore his dwelling place with his people. He will restore his temple in Jerusalem. This temple will be destroyed when when the Israelites are taken into exile. But God will restore it. But God will also restore the king from the family of David. The king who represents God before his people and who also represents the people before God. This is what God will do. He will do all of this in this one promise. One commentator named Motya puts it this way. He says, this phrase, the raising up of the birth of David, signifies the bringing in of the perfect royal mediator, the king who will be everything that was ever wished for in a royal priest. I don't know if you see what this commentator has done here. He has put together kingship and the temple, or a priest. I'll read the the last section of the quote once again. He says what we see in this phrase is the perfect royal mediator, the king who will be everything that was ever wished for in a royal priest. And you see, when Jesus steps onto the scene, we see that Jesus actually is this very person, this very person who is both a kingly priest and a priestly king. But more about that a little bit later. So here we see the first promise that God will make, that he will restore his dwelling place with Israel. Remember microcosm, but ultimately God will restore his dwelling place with humanity. He will make a kingdom where, where people from every tribe will dwell with him through this kingly priest. And as you hear this, you should hear echoes of Genesis immediately as you hear these very words. But that's the first thing. God's king dwelling among his people. Second thing that I want us to see is a beautiful people restored and we see this in verse 12. Notice what verse 12 tells us. A beautiful people restored that they may possess, this is the Israelites, the remnant of Eden and all of the nations who are called by my name declares the Lord. See verse 11 and 12 imply that God will restore the kingdom of his people. He will restore the Israelites when they come back from exile. And here's the beauty of God's kingdom that we are meant to see from this very passage. See, the blessing that the people of God will experience in God bringing them back will not just be for the Israelites. It will, not just be for the, for, it will not just be for the Israelites, but it will also be for Edom and for the nations. It will be for Edom and the nations. And if you remember in chapter 1 and 2, we saw that in chapter 1 and 2, the nations actually do not live in any way that shows that they want to follow God. And actually, we saw that even the people of God are not a good example to the nations. They're not drawing the nations to God. But here we see that the nations will become part of the kingdom of God. If you remember anything about Edom from our very first sermon, you remember I mentioned that Edom are the offsprings of Esau. And Esau and Jacob had a, a terrible relationship because Esau because Jacob stole the promise. We know that Jacob steals the promise, and so we see there that for a while in the story in Genesis, Esau chases Jacob. And the way that Edom's relationship with Israel is described, even in chapter 1, is that they chase their brother. See, they're always coming after their brother. And so these two nations, although they come from two people who are brothers, are actually long-standing enemies. They become long-standing enemies after the time of Esau and Jacob. But notice here, even the people who are the enemies of the people of God, even the people who are the enemies of God will be part of God's kingdom. They will share in the blessing that God will bring. And so as we see this, we should realize that this word, possess the remnant of Edom, does not talk about military conquest, but it talks about these people becoming part of God's family, because they will be called by his name. I love one how one translation puts it. This is how it translates this very verse. Then the people that are left in Edom and all the people that are called by my name will look for me for help. They will look for me for help. They will seek God as we saw in Amos chapter 5. This is what the people will do. They will seek God. And so Amos here immediately gives us a picture that when God fulfills this promise, God will create for himself a multi-ethnic family. He will create for himself a kingdom that is made up of people from every tribe, language, and tongue. And this is actually a fulfillment of a promise that is made to Abraham in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15. God says through Abraham he will bless all the nations of the world. And this is a promise that we see in Psalm 2 as well, where we see that the king of God's family will possess, he will rule, he will rule over the nations of the world. And that ruling will be ruling with goodness. It will be ruling with kindness and blessing. See, all the nations will become part of God's family. I mean, you see it immediately, not just in Revelation and in the New Testament, but you see it from the Old Testament. You see it here from Amos. But God has always been intent to have a multi-ethnic family. This has been God's plan from the very beginning. See, God's plan from the very beginning has been to have a family that is multi-ethnic, just like that seven-color dish that you had a little bit earlier today. I've heard some people calling it a several-color dish. Not seven, several-color. To me, it's seven-color. Even if there are three or four colors, it's a seven-color dish. It's a seven-color. God has always intended to have a family that is like that family that is varied, a family with people from different nations. God wants to bless the world. God has always intended that his family would look like those choice assorted biscuits. He has always intended that this family would look like this, that he would bless the rest of the world. See, God's king will dwell with his multi-ethnic, beautifully restored people. Two, third thing that we should see is that this king will bring these people and stay with them in an abundantly beautiful place verse 13 to verse 15 shows us exactly that and if you notice how that whole passage is, is described it talks about a lot of blessing and abundance it talks about a lot of blessing and abundance let's read it so that you can see it when the plowman it says behold the days are coming declares the lord when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the thread of grapes him who sows the seed the mountains shall drip with sweet wine And all the hills shall flow with it. I'll restore the fortunes of the house of Israel. And they shall rebuild the cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. And they shall make their gardens and eat their fruit. Now you see how this land is filled with abundance. I love it how how one commentator actually explains this. He explains it this way. This abundance will be seen in this way. That even as the person who's the reaper goes out to get the crops, while they are still getting the crops, the person who's a plowman, you does know what a plowman is. Now, I'm a Tembisa boy, city boy, so I hope you won't get lost in this illustration. The village boy should have been here to explain this. But but anyway, the plowman is the guy who comes to prepare the soil for the next seed time. They overturn overturn the soil and allow the soil to rest for a while in a period that is called fallowing, but notice what the passage, how the passage describes this abundant land. While people are still harvesting, the reaper will come to prepare the land for the next sick time. And notice how it also describes it. There will be so much grapes; the grapes will be so abundant and plentiful that the vineyards on the mountains will look as though they are flowing with their juice. If you've seen the Stienberg, uh and the Point or or the Stellenbosch Mountains, the vineyards, you will see how beautiful they are. The way he describes this abundance here is that when you look at the vineyards, it will look like they are flowing with wine. That's how much abundant this land will be. Moreover, the people of God we see in this passage will enjoy this blessing from God. They will eat and drink of it. There's an abundance that is Eden-like if not better, that is promised here. And this is something that those who eagerly seek God, those who were to follow God, would have would experience upon their return to the land. But fast forward to when the people of God returned to the land during the time of Haggai, Ezra, and Nehemiah. Now, we've done a series here at Church from Haggai. So if you want to know in full detail what happened, you can go and read, you can go and listen to that very series. Now when the people of God return from exile, God keeps his promise, they do return from exile. When they return from exile, they realize that God does indeed keep his promise. He does. The people return to the land, and they rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And they rebuild the temple. The temple is restored. And someone from David's family, someone called Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, who could be king, actually leads God's people. And there's some abundance and prosperity in the land. But as you read through Haggai, as you read through Zechariah, and all the prophets afterwards, you realize that the fulfillment is not as you see it here. God does keep his promise, but the fulfillment is not as we see it here. Actually, after the people build the temple, you know what they do? They cry. Now you should go and read Haggai to figure out why they do that. And something else that happens, Zerubbabel is actually not king, he's a governor. He's someone who sat under someone else who's a king. And this is the king of Persia. So God has kept his promise, but it's not been fulfilled to its fullness here. But Haggai, during that time, tells the people that they should await a time. They should wait with eager anticipation, because there will come a time. When there is a better fulfillment of these promises. He actually says there is a time when there will be a greater glory. God will fulfill his promises. If you know a song by Israel Houghton that says, it's not over. This is the song that could have been playing in the background for them. It's not over. It's not finished. When God is in it. See, God will still fulfill his promises. Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, puts it this way. God's promises are not exhausted when they are fulfilled. For once they are performed, they stand just as good as they did before. And we may await a second and better accomplishment of them. God's promises, even when they're fulfilled, they're not exhausted. They're not exhausted. They stand as good as they did before. And we might even have to wait for a better accomplishment of them. And this is what happens here With the israelites when they come back to the land they 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 find themselves having to wait for a better accomplishment and as you read the story of the gospel you see that when jesus steps onto the scene the story of the gospel the story of christianity tells us that god actually ultimately fulfills these very promises in this jesus he fulfills these promises in this jesus and his kingdom how you may ask one Matthew tells us of this Jesus in his gospel, that this Jesus is the son of David and the son of Abraham that has come to bring blessing into the rest of the world. And as you read through the other gospels, Mark tells us that when Jesus steps onto the scene, he says he has come proclaiming the kingdom of God, that the kingdom of God is near. You know why? Because the king of God's kingdom is there. He has come to bring God's presence near. And then John John tells us that this Jesus, who is himself God, comes and tabernacles amongst us. He comes to bring God's presence near. And Luke tells us that this Jesus, who is the son of David, comes to bring to us the life of Eden. He comes to bring the freedom that every one of us have always desired. And if you remember our series in Luke, this is what we spoke about. This Jesus has come to give us this freedom, this Eden-like life, this Eden-like life that God has always promised. See, God is intent to keep his promises. And in this Jesus we see, as I said a bit earlier, a priestly king and a kingly priest, a king who mediates or brings God's presence close to us like a priest would. This is the job of a priest in the temple. He would bring God's presence near to the people. Jesus, this king, does this in the position of a priest. But this Jesus, who is also a priest, sympathizes with us and lays down his life as a sacrifice. He does not bring a sacrifice to the temple. Rather, he lays down his own life so that all who believe in him would become citizens who are part of God's kingdom, that they would experience and enjoy all this blessing that God has promised and that they'll not only enjoy it but they would take it to the rest of the world see the story of God in Jesus is this God is intent to bless humanity God is intent to bless humanity God is intent to make his dwelling amongst humanity and as we read through the story of Amos and the story of the Bible we realize that God at the end gets his way God gets his way. At the end, God wins. Nothing will stop God from fulfilling his promise to ultimately dwell with humanity. Again, not even the failure of his people, as we have seen here in this book. Not even their failure to be a representative of God. Not even their failure to take out this blessing into the rest of the world will stop God from showing his extravagant love. See, when we read the story of the Bible, when we learn it, we realize that it is the story of God's love, how God wants to ultimately display his love to humanity. And so as we think about Amos 1 to 9, especially 1 to 9 verse 10, it begins to make sense to us why God would send or speak such a harsh message to Israel. See, they are standing in the way of God giving his blessing to the rest of humanity. They're blocking that very work because they were meant to be light to the nations. They were meant to take the life of Eden, the life of the kingdom of God, to the rest of the nations. But we saw that they were like the nations. They were not different. And so we see that God here not only punishes them, but he purifies them and brings out a group of them who sought him to use them to take out this life of his kingdom. But ultimately we see that this life is brought in Jesus. We see that God is intent to keep his promise. God will keep his promise to dwell amongst mankind. He has done so. And actually you and I have gathered here today because of that. See, as we read through the story of the Bible, we should realize that, that from the very beginning, God has been intent to have you as part of his family. God has always been intent to dwell with you not just the Israelites. God has always been intent to dwell with the rest of humanity. And I think actually this should, in, this should influence as well how we think about the relationship of Israel and the rest of the nations in the Middle East now. When we understand that God has always been intent to bless the whole of humanity, we understand how to even think of that very situation. See, God has promised a beauty. And in Jesus, he brings this beauty. Second point, which is much shorter, beauty agents. Now, you might be wondering why I called this point beauty agents. One, as you read through the story of the Bible, you realize that you and I, when we have become objects of God's mercy, his goodness, and his kindness, God actually sends us out to be agents of that goodness. God sends us out on mission to take out the life of his kingdom, to the rest of the world, to Edenize the world, to join him in his mission. Now, I wanted to call this point at first, the agents of beauty. But I thought beauty agent is much better, and this is why. If you know a beauty agent, and ladies, I'm not knocking you right now, if you know a beauty agent, especially one who who does a face beat, when they've done someone's face, again, ladies, I'm not knocking you. All of you are beautiful. And to all of you who are listening to us online, all of, us, all of you are beautiful. I said, almost said us. All of you are beautiful. But if you've seen the work of beauty agents, very often when they've done a face beat, that person looks nothing like... It oh. <laughs> <laughs> look better. <laughs> but so it should be with the people of God. See, wherever God has placed you, whatever relationships you have at work with your family, whatever God has placed us, wherever he has placed us, it should be that when people walk in, they see that the place is no longer as it was. The relationship has changed. God has sent us to be his beauty agents, to take out his goodness to the rest of the world. And this is clear even from this very passage. And this is what one, again, Charles Spurgeon says. He says, as you read through this passage, you notice, this is what you notice, you notice the activity of labor which is mentioned in this passage. God does not promise that there should be fruitful crops without labor. Here we find plowmen, reapers, traders of grapes, and sowers of seeds. Now this is poetic language, but this poetic language gives us an idea of how God actually invites us to join, us, join him in his story. See, God has always intended that those who would become part of his family would take out the life of his family to the rest of the world. And you see, you and I as Christians should always wrestle with this. We should wrestle with how we should take out this goodness into the rest of the world. So quickly as we finish, let me apply it to the three things we spoke about a little bit earlier. One... If Jesus is king, then you and I will live lives that are submitted to him as our Lord and King. So it means in everything that we do, we will seek God and we will seek goodness. If you remember Amos chapter 5, in how we use our material resources, we will always seek God and seek the good of others. We will always figure out ways to seek the good of others, to be generous to others in what God has given us. In the way that we use our time, we will seek God. And seek the good of others and our relationships will do the very same and how we live our lives in sharing the gospel and living out the gospel we will show that we are truly submitted to god and what we desire what we want to see is what paul says everything being brought under the lordship of jesus See, this is what god calls us to not just you and i to not just live like this but he calls us to actually do this in the rest of life. And so, the next two things we'll talk about, you will see that they actually apply to that. They apply to that. The, the next one is people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. When we understand that God has always intended to have people from every nation, tribe, and tongue, and that He is King of God's kingdom, then we'll remember this as we interact with each other. Actually, the Christians in the New Testament actually do this. In Acts 15, as the Christians have gathered for a council, there's this new group of people, new group of Christians who are Gentiles, who have become part of God's kingdom. And they're trying to figure out how they will relate to these people. And James actually quotes this passage to them and reminds them that it's always been God's intention to have people from every nation to be part of his kingdom. And he shows them at that very moment that God has actually fulfilled this very promise and the Gentiles being engrafted into God's family and you see it in how they treat each other especially in Acts 6. In Acts 6 there are a group of women who are Gentile who are widows who are not looked after but because these Christians understand that all of them are part of God's family God's multi-ethnic family they think about how these widows who are Gentile will be treated See, they are mindful how those who are part of God's family will be treated. And so should we. We We should properly think about how we treat each other as those who are part of God's family. We should properly think about especially how we treat those who are needy. Those who need God's goodness the most. Last thing, the abundance land that God promises. Now, we see as we read through the story of the Bible that this abundance is found first and foremost in Jesus who comes and says, actually, in in John 10, he has come to bring the abundance life, the full life. And the full life is actually the life that is lived, seeking God and seeking the good of others. That's what the full life is. But there's more to this full life. See, this full life, at the end of it all, will be lived in in this abundant land that God has promised. But very often when we think of this abundant land, God has promised We think of it as being something in the future, and we forget the beginning and the end of the story. Genesis 1 and 2 tells us the story starts here with heaven and earth, and it ends here with the new heavens and the new earth, the renewed earth and renewed heavens. And see, when we know that, that this very world that we live in is the world that God is renewing, That God is not just waiting to destroy this world and make a new one, but rather through the resurrection of Jesus, as Jesus has ascended, God has begun a renewing work in the world. When we are aware of that, we will think about how we live in this world. We will think about how we live in our jobs. We will see our jobs as a part of what is contributing to making this world a place that is inhabitable for mankind, a place that is ordered, This is what God calls us to, to bring order. And in the resurrection of Jesus, God has begun that work. And through his spirit, he has armed us in his word, he has armed us to go out and bring order to this world. We are not waiting for a new world. God will renew this world and calls us to join him to do that. Listen to how one commentator puts this. The drama, the story of God's world, of God's the, story, the drama of the story of, God's, of God and his people will end with a new Jerusalem coming down from heaven so that the dwelling place of God is with humans. God is not going to snatch people to heaven and suddenly destroy this world. But God will renew this world and cause us to join him, to use our work and our every gift to do that. Let me close with this last quote. Listen to these words. The work of salvation in its full sense is about whole human beings, not merely souls. About the present, not simply the future. And it's, about, no, it's, it's also about what God does through us, not merely what God does in and for us. Let me read it again. The work of salvation in its full sense is one about the whole human beings, not merely souls. It's about the present, not simply the future. And it is about what God does through us, not simply what God does in us and for us. See, God saves us. He brings us into his family because he wants to restore his world. Will you join him on this mission? Or as the question that was posed earlier, will you, like Israel, stand in his way? Let's pray. Father, would you help us to see how in Jesus, you have brought us into your family, your kingdom. And that God, this has always been your intention from the very beginning, to have people from every nation, tongue, and tribe, to be part of your family. We see it here even in Amos, as you promised not only to restore your people, but to restore humanity. Lord, we know we have gathered here today because you have fulfilled that promise in Jesus. We who were Gentiles, who were far off from you, have been included in your family, have been brought into your family so that we are a beautifully restored people, a people who are given a full life, an abundance life in Jesus, a people who are shown your goodness, And the people whom you call to take this very goodness to the rest of the world. Would you help us to do that? And would you help us that as we do that, many more would be added to your family. So that they would enjoy this blessing, not only in this life, but ultimately on the day that you will bring down your new Jerusalem. New heavens and new earth. In a place where we know there will be no weeping. There will be no sadness. And Lord, there will be no mistreating of the poor or the needy. Because your goodness will flow like the ocean. But even today, Lord, would you help us as your people as we live to let that very goodness flow like the ocean in our lives. May people truly see that we are those who've been changed and made beautiful by your gospel and those who are beauty agents in jesus name amen great uh next series that we're doing as you heard from david is from romans and actually romans as you will hear from david uh picks up from this very theme of those who were gentiles being included into god's family and it's it's a wonderful story it's a wonderful book that David will take us through in the next, uh, for the next few weeks. So join us for that. And if you did not hear online, the music service is on the 27th, just to make sure that you've got the details for that. Do you have a good week.